The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots and Spectator's Daily Politics Podcast. I'm Katie Balls and I'm joined by James Forsyth and Isabel Hardbin. There are signs that the threat of Omicron is decreasing and ministers have started talking about how to learn to live with COVID. James, over the weekend there have been reports that there could be an end to free lateral flow tests for all and also talk about reducing the isolation period from seven days to five days pending a negative test result. Is there a debate in government on this? Do some want to move faster than others? I think, as always, there are those who are, who are more cautious than those who are less cautious. So I think what there is nearly everywhere is a broad sense that the government has got away with its decision not to impose more restrictions. There is much greater confidence that the NHS is going to kind of hold up. And then I think the kind of what I think the kind of un said bit of this debate about whether free lateral flow tests end or not, you know, in, say, March or April, is I think there are lots of people who think that by March or April, isolation for COVID will have gone, that that we won't be in a world where people are testing and people are forced to isolate for even, let alone for any days, let alone five days if they have it. I think there will be advice that people should stay at home if they feel sick. But I think compulsory isolation might be coming to an end because it does look like, and famous last words because this virus has surprised us so many times, that we are getting into a situation where with Omicron, yes, it is infectious, but it is not anywhere near as deadly a threat as COVID was when it first arrived on the scene. So I, I think there is a broad move towards normality. Now, how many times have we heard that before? But I think there is a kind of growing optimism that by kind of Easter time, we might be in a world where we were we were not having all of these public health regulations that specifically relate to COVID. And Isabel, it's interesting that when Michael Gove was doing the morning media round this morning, Gove, someone who has argued for um, more restrictions, you know, as recently as that Christmas debate where ultimately Boris Johnson decided not to bring them in, um, he said that we must learn to live with COVID and said the Prime Minister had proved right when it came to not bring in restrictions that he had actually pushed for at Cabinet. So are we seeing even the so-called doves actually now reassessing what the outlook looks like in the light of Omicron? Yes, Michael Gove was still quite happy to underline that he had been what he called on the radio this morning at the more cautious end of the Cabinet. But there has been, I think, growing optimism amongst uh, the Cabinet ministers who'd been pushing back against further restrictions because they've heard not just the government's data, but also actually assessments from the NHS front line, which some of them, it has to be said, suspect NHS chiefs of of inflating the uh, demand and the pressure on the health service for various reasons. But actually, the assessment from Chris Hopson, who's the chief of NHS providers, which represents uh, hospital trusts and ambulance trusts in England, uh, is that he thinks the front line is going to hold in the NHS. And some of his very long tweet threads over the past few months have not been this upbeat. And so that's really buoyed cabinet ministers who were worried that they were going to have to go down the further restrictions route. 
And on that, I'm actually going to bring in the Spectator's data correspondent, our roving reporter, Fraser Nelson. Thanks, Katie. Well, on the Spectator Data Hub, you can track this every day. And there are some really interesting trends which raise the question of whether Omicron has peaked not just in London, it peaked in London at the end of last month, but whether it's peaked nationally. Now, it's very early to say, I'd, I'd say we need to wait at the end of the week till we say anything for sure. But when you look at the number of COVID tests, we can see they're on the turn, that they're actually on the way down. That might be a holiday effect, it might not. When you look at the number of admissions to hospital, that's actually hit a peak of 2,370 on December the 29th. It hasn't been back at that. So it's now actually down at 1,700. I'm not saying it would increase. I actually had expected it to go right up to 4,000. But so far anyway, the hospital admissions have been significantly lower than they were at the end of last year. Now, when you look at intensive care, that is what is really fascinating. The number of patients in intensive care is actually falling. It's way less than it was this time last year, and it's far closer now to what it is in your average year. That is apparently because Omicron patients are way less likely to need intensive care. So when you look at the burden placed on the NHS, you can't really see that the, say the ICU units are um, being overwhelmed because they're not. Now, what this does is suggest that the sage warnings that we were given last December were way, way out. Perhaps the most popular part of a spectator's data hub is where we um, compare the scenarios that Sage gave at the time where Chris Whitty and others were arguing for more restrictions versus the actual. Now, why this is such good fun is normally the government will change the policy so you'd never know if Sage's prediction was going to be right or going to be wrong. But this time they didn't change the policy. So when we're looking at the number of um, hospitalizations, I was saying how it's 1,700 right now. Now, Warwick University, its model said that if Omicron was half as severe as Delta, and that's what we think right now, the UK HSA says it's about half as severe, then the number of hospitalizations would be anything between 7,000 and 15,000 by now. Nowhere near. It's just below 2,000. And then we've got the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Their uh, modelling was one of the most dramatic to come down right at the point that the Cabinet were being pressurised to back restrictions. When they were looking at the number of beds occupied in hospital, one of their scenarios had this as high as 100,000. The lowest of their low um, scenarios had this at 30,000. In fact, the figure is 16,000. So... What we're seeing now, not only as Omicron might have turned the corner this week, but the actual scenario is way, way better than any of the SAGE scenarios involved. This ought to raise pretty serious questions, I think, about the calibre of a SAGE advice. And I think that over, so right now, by the end of this week, we should be asking some pretty serious questions about whether Plan B is still justified. And on that, there's been an intervention from Mark Harper, who leads the COVID recovery group, ultimately saying through the medium of the media to the Prime Minister that he must axe all COVID curbs, so including Plan B, by the end of the month. James, do you think this is going to hold much weight with the government? In a way, the COVID recovery group in the past has often called for things and the government has ignored them, but it does feel at least over Christmas, the balance of power has shifted. So, for example, that cabinet call where Boris Johnson effectively decided not to bring in restrictions, many thought he did want to bring them in at the start of the meeting. It was at least leaning towards it, but the cabinet opposed it. And I wonder, does that extend now to what MPs think? So plan B, I think, is meant to run out on the 26th of January. I think if you end up in a situation where the NHS is, is, in inverted commas, coping, then I think it will be hard to justify sustaining 
the restrictions beyond that. You also hear an argument made sotto voce by lots of ministers and not quite so sotto voce by a growing number of MPs, which is, look, if you're worried about the cost of living and you're worried about the economy in general, getting rid of the restrictions and allowing travel, hospitality, retail to get back to something like normal, that would help out on terms of people's kind of whole cost of living challenge. So I think if the government came to the Commons and tried to extend the Plan B restrictions beyond January 26th, I think if things continue on the trajectory that they are currently on, you would see a Tory rebellion that would be larger than the rebellion you saw against COVID certification back in December. Isabel, the other thing Michael Gove was talking about on that interview on the Today programme related to cladding. Now, you've covered this extensively on Coffee House. You'll have also have Emma Byrne, our production editor, who's been personally affected by it. And this morning, lots of people asking, why didn't Robert Jenrick do what Michael Gove has done? So what has Michael Gove done and why didn't Jenrick do that, his predecessor? So Michael Gove is coming after the developers who have uh, really been refusing to stump up the money to do the remediating work on sort of low-rise blocks that have this unsafe cladding, whether it's the the Grenfell cladding or Grenfell-style cladding or or other things like flammable balconies and things like that. And um, as Emma Byrne, our assistant editor, has has written in the magazine and as we've covered on Coffee House, this is leaving people facing huge debts i mean you know hundreds of thousands of pounds in some case uh, to cover this work as leaseholders so michael gove's solution is to make the developers pay for this but he's basically had to agree with the treasury that if the developers don't stump up the cash then his department, uh, the Ministry of Leveling Up, will have to stump up the cash itself instead. So that's the way in which he's he's managed to move things. Why Gove has done this and not Robert Jenrick? Well, Michael Gove has a, a heritage, a habit, shall we say, of coming into departments that have highly unpopular policies uh, as a legacy from the previous minister and reversing those policies in as high profile a way as possible. I'm thinking particularly uh, of his tenure uh, in the justice brief after Chris Grayling, where he uh, made himself very popular uh, with the the justice establishment by reversing things like the book ban and, and various other unpopular policies that Chris Grayling had introduced. And so he's, he's doing this again uh, in the levelling up department. I think also Jenrick was somebody who was either closer to or less able to stand up to the Treasury. And I think, I mean, battles between ministers and prime ministers and the Treasury are part of politics, whoever's in government, whoever's the prime minister. But I think standoffs uh, with the Treasury are going to be a really interesting feature uh, of this year in politics because you've got Rishi Sunak, who's obviously very ambitious, but who's also very anxious about the amount of strain on the public finances. And then you've got a lot of ministers, including the prime minister, who still want to spend lots of money doing things. And uh, those tensions are going to be really interesting. Now, James, just on cladding, you have a situation where um, ultimately the Treasury um, and Simon Clark have gone for you know a written assurance that if Michael Gove fails to claim this money from the companies, we'll get companies to pay for the cladding costs it's not coming from new money it would have to come from the current mclg budget do you think that there's a risk of this happening when michael Gove was quizzed on it he said that ultimately if he had to hit up for the blunt 
option of higher tax as just for those specific companies. Yeah, and I think if you look at his interview that Michael Gove did with The Spectator before Christmas, it, it was clear that this is where he has been heading for some time. And I think you need to see his remarks on this. He says, you know, look at what has come out in the Grenfell Inquiry in terms of what was, uh, in terms of the dangers of these materials and, and how the industry operated. So I think he essentially is going to the industry saying, please stump up this cash. And essentially, if you're not going to stump up this cash voluntarily, we will change the law to impose some kind of windfall tax on you to to obtain the money. So it is a voluntary request from these people uh, to, to the industry for the money. But, but it's not really that voluntary because he is quite clearly prepared to impose new taxation on them, special levy on them or something of that sort if they are not prepared to provide the money. I also think one of the other things about this is I think he's trying to inject some more proportionality into the system. I think if you look at a lot of the people who've been so hit by this, one of the things that's happened is, you know, these waking watches and things like that, they are incredibly expensive. And so I think it is both a move to get the developers to pay more and also to to create more proportionality in how some of these some of the, how how these risks are assessed. Thank you James, thank you Isabel and thank you for listening.